Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor live session. I have a wonderful guest, Charlie Harrell, Dr. Harrell from BYU. He is now happily retired, but we are going to talk about his truly important book, This Is My Doctrine. So let me get this show on the road and we'll get going here. Welcome to tonight's show. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have gotten to know Charlie Harrell. He is a retired BYU professor. Let's bring him on and he can tell us a little bit more about himself and about his book. We've got a good program that we're going to talk about tonight with his introduction and his first chapter. Hello, Dr. Harrell. How are you tonight? Very good. Very good. Glad to be here. Well, thank you for being here. I am honored to have you on my show. Uh, I've got uh, a lot of folks here who are anxious to hear from you. I'm going to quickly say hi to Mosia, Baba Lover, Lorena, Cornelia, John Rosbarski, Peter Higgs, Mark Crispin. Yeah, baby. I got to do that for Mark, buddy. Doug Vincent. How you doing? Elisa Galeen. All of you guys, welcome. So, uh, you a few years back wrote a really fairly large, and you know, I lost the cover. I mean, idiot that I am, but I, I can't show you the cover. It's just, there it is. And I remember, it, yeah, it was a beautiful cover. This is what we want to talk about tonight. So I'm kind of curious because when I first read your book, I came out pretty hard against it i thought that you were a uh not an apologist your book is not an apologetic book that was the one thing that pleasantly surprised me but when, when i began to read through it I, I thought well wait a minute wait a minute he can't as a byu professor there's no way he could really actually believe what that paragraph said and then you know the next chapter, you'd be saying something and I'd go, oh, I see what he's doing, I think. So you kept me on the edge of my seat all the way through this book. I could not put the book down. So how did you come about writing this book? It's a big book. Pretty thick. Uh, took quite a while to write it. Um, started out with uh, a book, a manuscript that was much larger even than that and had to whittle it down to 
something that was manageable. But yeah. I really wanted to get into the, you know, the thick of things, which uh, a lot of people will not like about the book because uh, it gets a little too detailed for a lot of people. But that's what I wanted to do is, is not just make uh, generalizations, but to actually get into the thick of it and flesh out the, the details. You did exceptionally well with that, my friend. I was, that for me, that was what gives your book the oomph, the, uh, the readability in my opinion. But then, you know, I was a former apologist. I, I sought to be the very, very best I could. And so I personally like the detail, but the amount of detail that you gave in each chapter, and you cover a lot of ground, the second coming of the millennium, just quickly, the gathering of Israel and the establishment of Zion, salvation for the dead, the gospel plan. You talk about the fallen nature of man, the creation, the preexistence, Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Godhead. I'm going backwards through it because I'm left-handed, sorry. The, uh, the restoration, the apostasy, and finally the, the introduction theology. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful. There's the table of contents, the divine human enterprise. Now, we're going to show the audience tonight what kind of somewhat detail that you are capable of going into, because here's the thing I loved about your book. Every page has something in, in a, in a detail. Yes, there's a great overview and all. I'm not trying to discourage people from buying the book. If you have not bought this book, you really need to go buy this book. It's worth every penny. It's fantastic. But the detail is what stunned me because I kind of, you know, pride myself. Look, I, I look into a lot of stuff. When I look into a subject, I look into a subject and then Dr. Harold comes along and shows me, yeah, Carrie, you did okay looking into this subject. He just went so much more broad and deep. And I love that about your book. So thank you, number one, for writing such a sensational book. Just fabulous stuff. Let's, uh, what we're going to do now, I've made these slides, and I might have overdone them with the, with the amount of information on each slide, because I'm using this as a way to give Charlie and I sort of a, a generalized way to talk about these uh, themes as we work through this. So would you like to uh, begin on this slide, Charlie? And, and you can cut this is from your preface. And I thought the way you set this up was really important for us to grasp. Sure. Um, so over on the right side, uh, just defining doctrine, um, it's generally taken as axiomatic that the prophet's words, like scripture, are divinely inspired and reflect a consistent and objectively true theology. So that's, that's the mindset, I think, in the church. That's how I was raised in the church, to understand uh, prophetic teachings and scriptural teachings as being the absolute truth, yeah. inalterable. And in fact, I just looked at uh, some of the recent teachings or materials on the church website, 
and the instruction to church teachers states, teach only the doctrine of the restored church of Jesus Christ as found in the scriptures and words of Latter-day prophets. Mm-hmm. So that should be the source of the teachings and our beliefs. And then um, that's from the Come Follow Me uh, manual for 2020. And then for 2023, this upcoming year in the study for a study guide for the New Testament, it clearly defines what doctrine is to the church. A doctrine is an eternal, unchanging truth. So however much uh, church leaders or uh, private discussions may try to downplay that or suggest that, uh, well, prophets are fallible, they're not perfect when uh, something comes to light that uh, shows a little, you know, the, the darker side of what goes on. Still, their public proclamation is a doctrine or doctrines are eternal, unchanging truths. So then, Carrie, you've got this uh, view, the picture of President Nelson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Right. Yeah. So he's the only one. Yeah, that's what we're taught, who can receive true doctrine and revelation for the whole church. Yes. All others need to follow in behind and believe what he teaches. Yeah, and I, and I can echo that. That that is how I was raised. Is the the brethren teach the doctrine, and it um, I believe it was emphasized more when uh, President Benson, Ezra Tap Benson, got in. He really did. He had that fourteen steps of following the living prophet, etc. Yeah. He really did make a big deal about the living prophet, even taking precedent over the scripture, which really just did not jive with me for the obvious reason is because he kept using Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would emphasize the Book of Mormon. I said, well, why should I read the Book of Mormon? That came from dead prophets. It was translated by a dead prophet. It doesn't matter if it was the gift and power of God. What do you have to say? And that's when the incongruity truly, for me, became, became sticky with this theme. So I think I get what they're trying to get at, but as we'll see tonight, because of your magnificent research, this is an ideal, but it rarely manifests as reality. So that's it. And we will see that as, uh, and, and I thought your idea here was also very interesting. If I may, I'll, I'll read this one. The, uh, the church has never published an official exposition of Mormon doctrines. Now, it's interesting. They say, well, the doctrines are eternal. They're fixed. They're unchanging. And yet they are atheological as a church. That is, there's no church-sanctioned church-approved, or systematic theology of any kind. And this is is interesting because, well, we know Joseph Smith said away with the, with the creeds and, and stuff like that. I don't believe in those at all. I want to have the freedom to believe as I want to believe. And that is how he, and today, and when I told Dennis, Dennis McDonald, this, he just whooped with laughter. He couldn't help it. He must laugh for a full minute. When I said, well, the church does teach you today. Look, you can believe anything you want. Just don't talk about it in church. 
Right. Well, that's far, that's a far cry from Joseph Smith, who said, you can believe anything you want, period. I'm not in, insisting you believe what I believe, and I dang sure I'm not going to kick you out of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not today's Mormonism at all. So, that's right. Yeah, it, it's uh, they want doctrinal matters. They want them to come from the Lord, but once they make a pronouncement on a doctrinal matter, that's it. That's what you have to believe. Otherwise, you're not being a faithful uh, follower on the covenant path, etc. I mean, they make you guilty for even believing anything they don't even say. It's just astonishing these days. So, yeah. So, so by the way, Carrie, when I say that uh, the church is atheological, and by the way, I'm, I'm actually uh, quoting. Um, uh, yes, you are, Jim Faulkner on. on Faulkner. Um, but certainly, there is a body of teachings in the church. I think everybody's aware of that. Uh, what's in the manuals, uh, the church lessons, you know, gospel principles all these teachings that are published by the church are sanctioned by the church and they are at least quasi-official teachings and doctrines that are being presented there. But the church always has the fallback position that it is the teachings of in the scriptures and of the prophets that is where we find the doctrine. It's not in a manual you have to go back to the source. So it's good that they try to maintain a source and have something to point back to, but it does, uh, I think it serves to get them off the hook in some cases. I suspect so. Um, Yeah, because now they're saying to, or they try to encourage us strongly to, just use the church-sponsored materials and what we print, et cetera. Don't bring in any outside materials in the lessons. These lessons are inspired from us. <laughs> and yet they turn around and say, well, those aren't the binding doctrines what we say are. So so there's a, it's a, I think what they're just trying to do is accommodate as many people as they can in a harmonious way, but unfortunately it leads to some seriously bad tangles once we begin to study the history. And perhaps maybe that's why they don't like the history. I don't know. I love the history, but, and this one, this was probably my fault. I don't want to get Charlie in trouble for this. He did not bring out this Bruce R. McConkie quote, at least that I can remember anyway, did you, Charlie? But uh, when I was studying McConkie and Eugene England's uh, spat over does God have all knowledge? Eugene England said, no, he's continually learning. Bruce R. McConkie put that as one of his seven deadly heresies in his BYU talk. And he said to Eugene England privately, it is my province to teach to the church what the doctrine is. Notice there's no equivocation here, folks. It is your province to echo what I say, or to remain silent. (laughs) I will never forget when this letter was pointed out to me. I was not aware of the letter. I read England's side, and then I read McConkie's side, and then this letter was shown to me, and I was completely blown away. Uh, There is, well, 
In the green here, modern prophetic teachings should not be thought of as final and the inalterable word of God. Now, it was Bruce R. McConkie himself who emphasized that the last word has not been spoken on any subject, and there are more things we do not know about the doctrines of salvation than there are things that we do know. And yet, from this public stance, in the private correspondence with Eugene England, he basically said, I'll speak, you listen, believe, and obey, or shut up. See, there's a tension there. Um, And so Brigham Young himself said that uh, nothing has passed that's perfect between God and man because mankind is involved. And then, of course, the New Testament Apostle Paul, we see through a glass darkly. Now, I, what do you think, Charlie? My supposition is we, we love to quote that, you know, from Paul. Well, we see through a glass darkly and we don't really, we only know in part, et cetera. But are we just kind of using that as a, as a quick throwaway statement at this point. No, nobody really seems to take Paul seriously. Do they in the leadership anymore? Yeah. And, and uh, interestingly, as you mentioned, I did not include that uh, statement by uh, Elder McConkie as one of the quotes. Although I do quote that letter from that letter later on, on uh, blacks and the priesthood. Yeah. I tried to to find quotes by general authorities and leaders that left a door open for change, to allow for change, because that's what I'm trying to introduce. The book was written primarily for an LDS audience, but I know from my own background that the way that we are taught in the church is to believe that doctrines are eternal and unchanging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to get people to at least consider the possibility that maybe they're not so rigid and static, uh, I tried to include a lot of these types of quotes. So what you're saying is the quote from Paul is one that uh, makes some good sense if you think about it. it. It really is telling us that, hey, we're human we're finite, we're fallible, we don't see clearly, and yet the church leaders publicly, what they want us to to believe is that they do see clearly, and uh, yeah, that's, there's some tension, as you point out, inconsistencies. Yeah, that is a very powerful point, because we see this right up to right now. I've seen this more or less my entire life, as you have and as most of the audience has. And yet there is that segment of the membership who really does not want to accept that that is what is happening, and yet that is what is happening. I don't know. I My suspicion is it is the way they keep uh, trying to maintain their authority, and yet uh, they don't want to overwhelm, and yet they want people to follow them. And yet they say, well, you have to get your own light. You have to get your own testimony. Utzdorf, Elder Utzdorf, just recently, I should call him President Utzdorf, so, uh, just within the last couple of years said, you cannot live on borrowed light. Don't 
don't build your faith on my testimony. And yet they turn around and say, yes, but I teach the true doctrine. And so you have no choice. Mm -hmm. They don't word it that way, but that is certainly the implication. Now, because of this, we have a range of uh, members' attitudes in the church. And I thought you did this extremely well. Why don't you elaborate on this? This was a wonderful part of your book. Uh, okay, so you do find a spectrum of belief in the church from very conservative, what I call a conservative, conservative not politically, but theologically. Uh, some people have a conservative theological perspective. Some have a more liberal theological perspective. And then there's all the way in between where some can, you know, they're sort of cafeteria Mormons. They take some very <laughs> strongly and, and uh, set aside others that don't uh, conform to their liking. So in the yellow panel, um, this is an excerpt pretty much from the book that says members of the church uh, more on the liberal end, except the scriptures inspired, but may at the same time also perceive them to be human formed and therefore not to be taken indiscriminately as the absolute truth. So that's the more liberal end. You're right. Take, for instance, the, the Genesis account of the idea of there being no death before the fall. Literalists and conservative thinkers become more or less anti-science when it demonstrates there has been death far longer than the 6,000 years from the beginning of Adam. More liberal-oriented thinkers recognize the human thinking involved in the writing of the scripture in the first place, a problem with the original author's understanding of reality. So basically what this is getting at is that uh, a conservative theological thinker will say that is the truth. It's in the scriptures. It's the absolute truth. God, now, we need to somehow make that consistent with the findings of science. Uh, and maybe, so one explanation is that maybe uh, that only refers to there being no death before, uh, or, or no death in the Garden of Eden, not in the entire world. Um, mm -hmm. You get into pre-Adamite kind of thinking. and um, Whereas a liberal thinker doesn't have to do all those mental gymnastics. They simply recognize that scripture is human informed. And so we'll just take some with a grain of salt and say, oh, it's, you know, that reflects some cultural uh, thinking of the time where it was a non-scientific age and yeah. move on. Yeah. I, I think one of my transition uh, issues I, I was actually quite conservative for most of my being raised in the church. And uh, I was very conservative on my mission. And uh, and then that started to unravel. I, I went to college. Actually, I went to Rick's college and I had a very excellent uh, fine arts team. I can't remember what they called it back then, but uh, Romney, Brother Romney skinny gentleman. Anybody who was in Rick's in the uh, early 1980s will know who Brother Romney was. He was a genius. He was phenomenal. And he was a much more liberal type of thinker. And that transition from recognizing things like this as, well, yes, it's in the scripture. However, even the original scripture could be a human interpretation 
I'll never forget how that opened my eyes. So I, I've kind of fluctuated back and forth with this theme of liberal and uh, conservative. And this causes serious tension within the church between members and the church leadership. As a general rule, um, I would suspect most of the leaders are quite frankly conservative. Would I be would I be exaggerating that if I said they're very conservative? Do you think? Probably not. But again, you know, we we have this public voice uh, that we hear, which sounds very ultra conservative, and uh, yet the private voice. I think there would be a lot more nuance in the belief. Um, That's a good way to put it. I, yeah. I think that's what we would discover. Yeah. And, and you, you brought up an interesting point earlier, Carrie, about um, what motivates leaders to present this aura of certainty to, to sustain this, this uh, culture of certainty in the church. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, they're trying to, uh, maintain authority or it helps them have greater authority perhaps. Uh, I think that would be a fascinating study for someone to do because there's got to be a lot of elements involved, factors involved that lead or motivate leaders. Why is it that they have to be so certain in public and, and speak like they know with absolute certainty and yet in private discussions, they don't have that same kind of degree of certainty. Yeah, there's a psychology at play there, isn't there? Really there? Is. there really is. Yeah. It's a it's a, a serious concern for image that yes, we are the anchor of certainty. We actually have a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley a little later tonight that we'll look at on that line. I, that's a good point. Mm. And on this one, I was just showing that the advent occurred. Of the advent of Mormonism occurred during the Second Great Awakening in early America. And uh, it's interesting that it only took two decades for Mormonism to distinguish its doctrines from Christianity. And we will show a little later that uh, in the beginning, Mormonism was not much different than Protestantism in so many areas. So there was nothing in Mormonism that had not been anticipated over the preceding half century. Very interesting. So the being raised conservative, I would say I would have found that objectionable at one point in my life, simply because uh, there's no way any of this could have been anticipated. There had been an apostasy. And so we had to have a full fresh, clean, uh, mm -hmm. new, new beginning. And so there was a vacuum of, uh, of true doctrine of actual understanding history, et cetera, until Joseph Smith brought it all back. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I mean when I say I, I was raised conservatively because <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude, but that is so blessed naive. <laughs> kind of thinking. I mean, wow, it's hard to believe I had that kind of thinking, but I really did. So, and I suspect a lot of people do. Yeah. yeah. It's just the way it works. So, And on this one, now, 
it does appear somewhat that we're hop hopping, skipping, and jumping. But the way Dr. Harrell's book is written is so very helpful. So let me try to explain this real quick. Then we'll let Dr. Harrell talk about this a bit. Dr. Harrell is showing this is the best book in print anywhere. Hold on. Hold on. You need to see my face. This is the best book anywhere in print on showing the value of a comparison contrast uh, because Dr. Harrell is, you know, he'll bring up a subject, theology, for this one that we're talking about, a divine human enterprise. Okay, now what he's going to do is he gives us uh, the Mormon view, and then within that Mormon view, there is a spectrum like we were just talking about. Then he shows the Old Testament and ancient historical view. Then he'll discuss the New Testament. Then he'll discuss the early Mormon. And then he'll discuss today's Mormon. In order to illustrate the issues to show that Mormonism is not just a unified system that was had in the Old Testament days that came up into the New Testament days. He does, it looks like hop, skipping, and jumping, but it's an excellent comparison contrast. So I, I'm not trying to belabor that point, but anyway, so this is why now we're going into the ancient history. So Dr. Harold, take it away. Mm. Yeah, uh, as we looked at earlier in, in some of the slides that you showed, Carrie, was that the position of the church relative to doctrine is that a doctrine is an eternal, unchanging truth. Mm -hmm. The evidentiary data shows that that's not the case, that doctrines do, in fact, change over time. And uh, all of these ages of theological teaching, beginning with Old Testament times, they continue to layer on top of each other. So we get, uh, you know, the New Testament that overlays on top of Old Testament teachings, reinterprets them uh, for their own time and place and culture and, and with the Christ sensitivities. So now we introduce the Savior into the world. And mm -hmm. then those teachings get overlaid by Christianity through the ages up to the 19th century when Mormonism inherits this these accretions of theological development, and they simply adopt those and continue their own overlay on top of those to continue <laughs> developing them. That's kind of how it works. So yeah. in, instead of doctrine being um, eternal, unchanging truth, uh, it really is just simply what a religious community chooses to believe and what they teach at any moment in time. And, you know, that's the, that's the standard dictionary definition of doctrine. It's not, if you look up doctrine in any dictionary, it's not eternal, absolute, unchanging truth. It's simply the beliefs of a particular religious group. Uh, that is, if we're talking about, of course, religious doctrine, there's all kinds of different doctrine, but... Um, yeah. That's what we see, is that uh, doctrine develops and, and evolves through the ages, changing based on cultural needs and uh, expediencies. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the most profound parts of your, and and you show this steadily throughout the course of the book, regardless of which uh, doctrine or even historical development that you're elaborating on. I love how you've made that so wonderful, uh, just so easy to understand. Now, this one is all pictures, so I'm going to take this one. <laughs> I'm going to make you do all the hard work, Charlie. Sorry. Thank you. It is important to recognize uh, the basis of a restoration. Uh, Joseph Smith was claiming to restore proper, well, the church of Jesus Christ. Russell M. Nelson makes a big deal about the name even these days. So when we study the history, though, we see that this, this Christianity uh, was not a unique entity that came to exist from a vacuum. There was a background basis, and that background was Jewish, and it also included the ideology, the theology, and the practices of the Greco-Roman world in Jesus's day as well. So we, we have an eclectic. We do now know that there were a lot of different ideological groups. We have the Essenes, we have the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees, we have the scribes, uh, we, we have the Enochian groups that have now recently within the last two decades been brought forward and more and more biblical scholars, James D. Tabor, uh, Herschel Shanks of the Biblical Archaeology Review magazine brought this out quite a bit, but uh, James Vanderkam since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of these groups were out there with their own ideologies, and it was all great big mixing bowl. This was the information and background that the stories of Jesus rose in. So this is really important to recognize as well. Now we bump back to this part in Joseph Smith's day. And, I, and I'll let you take over this, Charlie, because the way you brought this out just struck me. So this is, this is really cool, in my opinion. Are you frozen? Uh-oh. Looks like Charlie's frozen. Did I freeze you out? Oh, no, he's frozen. Hold on, let me... Uh... Oh, wow, he disappeared. Hold on, I'll get him back. <laughs> That's one way to get out of having an assignment, isn't it? Well, let's see what he says. Yeah, he's disconnected. Hold on, and I will re-invite you in just a moment. Here we go. I will send it, and we shall get you back. All right. In the meantime, let me just say that I'll go ahead and describe this. When Charlie described the, oh, here he is. He's back again. Okay. Right. Nope. No worries. No worries. I was just saying, I thought this was a very important point that you brought out, uh, why don't you go ahead and elaborate on this? It struck me so powerfully that I wanted to include this. So, 
Now, this is just an example that I include in the preface, though uh, there's a whole chapter on the nature of the Godhead is one of the chapters in the book, but just something so basic and fundamental as the nature of the Godhead, uh, that's expressed differently across all the LDS scriptures that we have from the Old Testament, the New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, suggesting that doctrines are dynamic and change with time, even with fundamental core teachings like the Godhead. So, yeah, uh, that, that's kind of hard for a conservative theological thinker to grasp and, and to buy into. But if they're not open to consider that this kind of a doctrine, that even fundamental doctrines can change, um, they're not likely to be receptive to other ideas that are similar. Yeah, that that that's that is such a powerful point on just such a core doctrine that there really are genuine and they these are genuine differences. It's not just a different and and the interesting thing is it is differences with the various ancient authors among themselves as well. And, and so there really has never been uh, a single correct doctrine of God from Adam on that went through a series of apostasies and then restored to the true Mormon doctrine of God today through time. That, that's just not how it works. That's a good ideal. It's a good ideology, but it's not historic reality. And, and this, this is where I was, uh, and this is how I was raised right here. We think that Joseph Smith started with a clean slate. And uh, you described this so well on the uh, the theme of syncretism. Go ahead and tell us how you, what, what were you feeling like when you discovered there was so much syncretism? That, that, that could be fascinating. Oh, it's extremely fascinating. I think anybody that uh, dives into uh, early 19th century uh, sermons and writings it's just incredibly fascinating to see that uh, it's almost like a chapter from the Book of Mormon or something jumping out of a 19th century sermon that you read and think, wow, you know, that wasn't unique to the Book of Mormon at all. Uh, the concept, for example, of an infinite atonement. You know, everybody was talking about that in Joseph Smith's day, and we think that that is so unique to the Book of Mormon, if you read Tad Callister. Um, and yet that was commonplace. Yeah. And, and this is what is not being brought out. And so when, when it is discovered and understood, well, when I did, uh, this one hurt, that shook me that, that that's not fun. And so this idea of trying to get a faith promoting historical narrative, stuff like this causes it to backfire because there has been theological development and the church doesn't want you to think that there has been a theological development. Theology comes from heaven in revelation to the prophet, you guys. So then the prophet teaches us the true doctrine, you guys, and we are supposed to believe it. This is the ideal that at least it appears to me, uh, messes with our testimonies when we find out that that's not how it works. Am it's I off base on that? 
It's a false narrative is what it is. Uh, And so in the book, and I state this at the outset, I'm not, I'm not, um, Uh Oh, did you freeze up again? Oh, criminy. Our connection is bad. (laughs) Hold on. Let me send you another invite if you don't. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, hold on. Let me send him an invite real quick. It's all good. I don't know what's wrong with our our, uh, connection. Maybe it's because of the winter storm. Who knows? We shall see soon enough, huh? Okay. Dang, I wanted him to get this, too, because this is so important. Yeah. He's contacting me. Oh, there he goes. Okay. Yes, I sent you the invite. Try again. I got you coming on. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Sent invite. There he is. Okay, let's get him back. Okay. Bad connection. I apologize. Well, that's okay. We're going to hit you with 50 wet noodles. (laughs) So so keep explaining this idea because this was fascinating to me. Um, so where was, what did I cut out? We, we were just starting to talk about the, the significance of the syncretism, the divine human interplay and, and how this false narrative. Oh, okay. Of, of everything being uniform from the beginning to today is clobbering the church. Yeah. And, and so as I was explaining, I don't uh, refute the uh, doctrines of Mormonism uh, a lot of them are simply non-verifiable and non-falsifiable, right? I mean, we don't know that God has doesn't have a body of flesh and bones, but we can't prove it either. Uh, but what I do target is the narrative underlying the theology and the doctrines in the church, the yeah. idea that Scripture and the words and teachings of the prophets are absolute, eternal, and unchanging. You know, that's easy to test. That's easy to verify or falsify. And that's what I think we need to get out of is that rigid framework and and false foundation that we have built this doctrinal structure on. Um, So it's the narrative. And so what I do doctrine after doctrine is show that that's just not sustainable by the historical evidence that we have. Yeah. And and this, unfortunately, uh, a consequence of this is it really does make the church look like they're lying to the members so often so much. And and that can be difficult. Now, Alexander Campbell in Joseph Smith's own day. And I remember I was told that this man was an anti-Mormon, and so I shouldn't worry about what he said and what he read. And he said that the Book of Mormon solves all of the controversies of the day, the, uh, the infant baptism, the Trinity, the fall of man, the atonement. In other words, the Book of Mormon brought nothing to the table except solving today's interpretations 
And even then, the Christians did not accept the Book of Mormon interpretations. So again, like we were saying earlier, the, the Protestant uh, weight of theology in early Mormonism was definitely not unique. So th that that's kind of interesting. So, and again, we'll bounce back because uh, ancient Israel and early Christianity. We now know, thanks to the archaeology, the vast historical scholarship, that it was their environments that caused them to have the doctrines and practices that they had. And now we know, because this used to be considered an anti-Mormon argument, the environment impacted Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and what he taught and where he went and what he believed and what kind of practices he put into the church to work with, ritual-wise. So the, the contemporary cultural influences is one of the things that you constantly bounce back and forth to in each one of your chapters to show the importance of the culture. I do believe somewhat the church is finally getting around to acknowledging this minimally. <laughs> Very minimal. And, and, but not publicly. Yeah. <laughs> At least like me. I, I know it's the oddest thing that they, they insist on their old image. Apparently, I don't. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. So, hey, you know. By the way, Carrie, that first chapter is called "Theology: A Divine Human Enterprise," and mm -hmm. one of the things that I try to get at there is the idea that it might be divine. There might be inspiration involved in the development of our doctrines. Because we can't, we can't, nobody can, can say that God is or isn't revealing things to his prophets. But Fair what enough. we can say is that if he is revealing these things, it still doesn't make them eternal and unchanging. So it really kind of overturns the basic idea that we have even about God. If we're going to say that God is revealing these things, now we have to come up with an explanation for why they're no different from the cultural environment that uh, Joseph Smith was in, uh, why they've changed over time, why they're not supported by biblical scripture. You know, is God changing? It's possible. You know, that. Yeah, but he says he doesn't. That's true. There's part of that tension, right? Yeah. But how do we know that that he says, he says, not only does he not change, neither does my word. My word will last forever. That's interesting. Now, crazy stuff. So, and, and I'm, I'm the one responsible for wording this. This isn't Charlie. This is me. Ancient, I should have said ancient Israelites. I tried to change that, but the program wouldn't let me. They were originally the pagan Canaanites. See, you have to use that word pagan in everybody who's not yourself, right? We call people Gentiles and apostates and Jack Mormons. You know, we Mormons do the same thing. Well, they later broke away and they took their own national god, Yahweh, from the Canaanite head god's son, 
as one of their own. Now, when I discovered this in biblical archaeology, this was a faith shaker. It is because Yahweh is not original. He is, it looks like I lost Charlie. I'm going to keep trying to talk. Yahweh is not original. He is derived. And this is so fascinating because we we like to think that Yahweh is original. There we go. He's back. Okay, there you are. You're back. Uh, we like to think that Yahweh is the original deity. And of course, one of the theological doctrines that caused great confusion in early Mormonism, and I've been podcasting on this in my backyardprofessor.org, is the idea that Yahweh was God the Father, not the Son. I know the church teaches that now, but it's not just the early Mormons who are confused here. This is what makes this so fascinating is we now know the early Israelites produced, as it were, their national deity, Yahweh, from the epithets and the powers and the abilities of El's other son named Baal. And this is huge in the biblical archaeology. I'm not just making stuff up to become anti-biblical and anti-Mormon here. This this is biblical archaeology. Charlie does a great job pulling this out of his book as well. So it's very interesting that ancient Israel was influenced by the ancient Near East's culture. I mean, to the point of temple building, rituals, practices, uh, because they they wanted to be independent from their neighbors, but we now know that they simply weren't. So, right. and the point of this is because no religion is, including the Mormon. And it, it, this is a tough one to overcome because they make such a big whoop to do about it. So, okay. Here's one of your other favorite ones to talk about, Charlie. I'll let you take it away. Um, so if we look at Old Testament beliefs, I think uh, as Latter-day Saints and even the larger Christian world um, needs to recognize some basic things about the Old Testament and its teachings and how incongruent they are with later Christian and LDS teachings. In the Old Testament, people are blessed for being obedient to God, but only in this life. There isn't uh, any promise made anywhere in the Old Testament that in the hereafter, you'll receive this kind of glory or um, this kind of reward. It just isn't there. The afterlife was a much later thought in Hebrew religion, not in the Old Testament. There are no clear and explicit references to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Many scholars, and, and that means in the Old Testament. In the, in the Old Testament, yeah. <laughs> now, you can, you can interpret certain passages as types and shadows, but there is no explicit reference to Christ or the gospel or his mission or the atonement, uh, nor is there any indication that any prophet had an inkling that Jesus would be born into the world as a redeemer. And, and when you say prophet, you mean of the caliber of Isaiah yes. and Jeremiah and yes. Daniel. And he's, I mean, the prophets, you guys, they are not just one 
line of Mormons going back to Adam here. This is so remarkably interesting. Yep. So Old Testament uh, scholars say that we should refrain from imposing modern Christian paradigms onto Old Testament narratives. Mormonism, as you point out, Gary, is notorious for just such an action and interpretation since theology claims Adam himself had the gospel from the very beginning. He was the first Mormon. There's precious <laughs> little of it in the Old Testament and more so in the Book of Mormon. And when I say more so, I meant some of the truly fundamental Mormon unique doctrines in uh, baptism for the dead. Oh, yeah. And three degrees of glory, having to go through the marriage ritual, polygamy, none of that is as a means of exaltation, second anointing, Melchizedek priesthood being ordained thereunto, you know, passing the sacrament. There's none of that in the Book of Mormon. Not only are they absent from the Book of Mormon, but in many instances, they are contradicted uh, yes. in the Book of Mormon. So we can get into those in, as we look at some of these teachings. So keep going. This, oh, and this is this is uh, th this is where we start getting into some fun stuff as far as the nitty. Granted, we're doing a generalized overview at this point in time, but we have to to lay the groundwork. We want to we want to craft this first chapter very carefully so that you get it when we start talking about some of the specific doctrines. But. Charlie did such a great job bringing up this idea. Um, I'm going to let you keep right on uh, discussing your fabulous book idea here with the New Testament. Now we move up into the New Testament record. Did you freeze up again? You did, didn't you? Every time I go to give him, <laughs> I think this is a conspiracy on Charlie's part. He's trying to make me do all the talking. <laughs> Okay, hang on. I'm sending you an invite, Charlie. <laughs> we'll see if he comes back real quick. Uh, he should. I will do a quick copy of an invite and send him an email. There we go. Harold Bingo. Okay, he's got, he's got his invite. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this so much is because we don't find the pristine gospel in the New Testament either. And we don't find that they smoothly were able to come in. Hey, welcome back again. I, I was just introducing this New Testament idea that we do not find a smooth transition from the New Testament or from the Old Testament into the New Testament because they're all using proof text. So Go ahead and elaborate on that point. This is one of your best spots in the book, I thought, in this chapter. Yeah, I, it's really striking how many proof texts there are in the New Testament. Um, and so what makes that interesting, doubly interesting, is that later Mormonism takes some of these New Testament proof texts of Old Testament passages and we use those as proof texts to prove even additional things. Yeah. Um, an example of this is the prophecy in Joel about uh, the young men, young, young women will dream dreams, you know, and see visions. I can't remember what passage it is right now offhand. But Do something, yeah. Into my mind. But, uh, you know, that's uh, used as a proof text in the New Testament and Acts to talk about how 
on the day of Pentecost, there's all these visions and so forth, which the Old Testament prophecy and Joel never anticipated. But there it is in the in the New Testament. And then we take it today in our day and say that's being fulfilled in modern times. And uh, yeah, we have our own modern Pentecostal movement. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Speaking in tongues and all. Yeah. yeah so I thought, go yeah. ahead. Uh, so there are just numerous uh, instances, and you go into Matthew, the book of Matthew, where it talks about uh, Jesus and the prophecies that uh, Matthew states are specifically alluding to Jesus. And when you read the passage, the Old Testament passage in its context, it's not talking at all about any future thing even, let alone Jesus and and uh, his uh, now, you, know, you can look at it again as a as a type or a shadow, or you could you can apply it to Christ. But the Old Testament prophets did not foresee Christ as they were uttering this, because it right. has a specific context, and it is you know it it's spoken of in their time for their time. Yeah, we want it to be about Jesus, just like Matthew did. And that doesn't make it so. <laughs> I I hate to put it that blunt, but I have to put it that blunt, uh, sincerely. So, And this is really important for uh, faith being faithful to the covenant path. The, the implying of... You're guilty if you don't believe this interpretation that Jesus was so infinitely important that even every Old Testament prophet had him on their minds constantly. Folks, that is a false narrative. It, it just is. That's how it is. So, And then here we go. Keep right on trucking, Charlie. Now we come up to Joseph Smith's day. We do find him very similar to the prophets in this regard. Right, Charlie? That's correct. <laughs> um, the, the proof text that uh, the prophet Joseph creates out of New Testament passages, and the, the fascinating thing is that oftentimes he will um, use a passage of Scripture in one way to prove one thing, and then later... Uh, use that same passage to prove something differently. Uh, an example in the book of Revelation where he talked about uh, God the Father's Father um, <laughs> concept, where uh, initially he said it's fine as it is. Uh, it refers to Jesus's father, who was God. And then later in Nauvoo, he came back and said, no, it's really... Uh, God the Father's Father that is being referenced here. So uh, you don't yeah. get consistent proof texting even from the prophet. Or, or do we get consistent proof texting in antiquity either? Because some of the proof texts that they used were earlier proof texts from earlier prophets. It's fascinating how all of that works. So and then we're trying to find the theme that appears to be trying to be foisted upon the people is that there is still 
relevant new meaning to these very old scriptures. And so it's, it's like an upgrading of them, if you will. Uh, and so this is a, a prominent part here. Now, I, I know what I loved about this part of the chapter is your exquisite uh, specifics of what proof text Joseph Smith was using. And this one I'm going to let you elaborate on because it is so fantastic. Uh, did you? Oh, you fr you froze up again. Let's see if you get back in here. I will invite you again. No worries, my friend. I think he can still just get to the same one um, that he has been using. We will find out. the The proof text here is to me so powerful because I know Kevin Barney. And I do respect Kevin Barney. He is one of the better apologists. And I call him apologist. I shouldn't call him an apologist. Barney is an actual bona fide biblical scholar of ancient Hebrew. He's, he's usually pretty careful with a lot of material. Welcome back. Um, I, I was just getting ready to talk about Kevin Barney's uh Point. Do you want to? Do you want to share with? Because Kevin told you this one personally. Why don't you tell us the story of how you found this proof text? Um, well, he actually wrote an article in the Ensign, and uh, oh, that's right. yeah, yeah. I saw this, but I did actually have his input. I asked him about it, and he confirmed, yeah, this is this is what it's what's really going on in this Isaiah passage twenty eight ten precept must be upon precept, line upon line. You know, we hear that passage all the time, and we think that that's how God reveals truth, line upon line, precept on precept. And in fact, the actual Hebrew doesn't say anything about anything being taught line upon line, precept upon precept. It's, it's saying that um, it, it's part of a child's spelling lesson, going to very fundamental goo-goo-ga-ga kind of talk, <laughs> saying that um, this is the, for you, um, the Lord's giving this to the leader of Ephraim. Um, it's the, the form Babel of the Assyrians who will soon invade their land. In other words, it will sound like gibberish to them and they won't be able to make any sense out of it. So it has nothing to do with uh, truth or any kind of teaching coming line upon line. And the, the thing that makes this interesting is that this passage, or a paraphrase of it at least, is in the Book of Mormon and yeah. in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so you wonder, how did we pick up that erroneous King James translation and it becomes solidified as Scripture in... The Book of Mormon in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, what's going on here? What's at play? And so it's just to get us thinking about what's going on that, that these passages get reformulated, uh, reused, and, and recycled, and they were never intended to be that to begin with. Yeah, what what is so wonderful here is uh, Kevin is one of those. Uh, apologist scholars whom I was able to associate really well with when I was with fair. And, uh, I, I was just so impressed with his Hebrew. He encouraged me to study Hebrew and he, he was telling me, he said, well, you know, the, 
the church formally doesn't study the Hebrew, but it would be better off if it did. Uh, Joseph Smith got it right, you guys. He, his attitude, his approach, his his beginning of the school of the prophets to study the ancient languages. <laughs> Fantastically fa interesting is he was in the process of translating the Egyptian right in the middle of the project when he sent Oliver Cowdery, one of his scribes, off to the east to pick up the Hebrew lexicons and dictionaries and lesson books to come back so that they could study the Bible in the original languages. It does make a difference here. Now, the real incongruity here, and I don't have the answer. We, Charlie may have thought through this. Maybe we can do this in another show. We're going to do several shows of, of various chapters of his book together this coming up year. So you'll want to watch those because we're going to elaborate through his book. But what is an ancient 600 BC book doing with a modern misunderstanding from the 16th century King James Version and then Jesus telling Joseph Smith the same unhebraic view. See, there's some sticky stuff here going on. I'm just saying. <laughs> really make, you know, someone do a research paper on that. You know, maybe I need to call the apologist and tell Steve Smoot, hey, would you drop the ridiculous book of Abraham and start studying the biblical stuff like Bakavoy and Dan McClellan's doing? So I might have to call Dan McClellan and see what he thinks of this. This is fantastically interesting. He's big on TikTok now. So anyway, these are the kind of fun, interesting information that we get when we take the impetus of ourselves to study the actual history, to look into the language, etc. And now this one I'm going to elaborate on because of what I did here to help us understand this. Thank you for bringing this out as a proof text. This one, of course, we all heard in seminary. No joke. Every Christian hears this in their own Sunday school too. And it's the, the famous proof text in the Old Testament of Everyone interprets it to mean Jesus Christ. What are these wounds in thy hands? And then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, please understand this. That is the scripture. Jesus was not wounded in the house of his friends. That should have been the first tip off to us immediately, we should have recognized, oh, wow, wait a minute. This is a wrong interpretation of our understanding of Zechariah. Sorry, I have to go back one. But what happens here, even Doctrine and Covenants section 45 alludes to Zechariah 13.6. Okay, you're back with us. And so the crazy thing is, it adds that the wounds were in his feet as well as his hands in the Doctrine and Covenants. But when we look at the Hebrew, the wounds are in the chest, not his hands and feet. And when Charlie wrote this, he showed that the Hebrew reads between the hands. And that was such a shock to me because I study Hebrew a little bit as a hobbyist more than as a scholar, but I'm going to change that hopefully someday. I looked up the Hebrew and I actually put it in this slide for you so that you can see yourself. 
the section on the left is from my Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensian interlinear. And the Hebrew there is Bain Yadek, the between your hands. It really does say between. It doesn't say the wounds are in his hands. So what's the context here? The wounds were inflicted on the false prophets in Israel. And Adam Clark mentioned that also. He ridiculed, he, he didn't ridicule, but he charged the Christians of his day, stop saying this is a prophecy of Christ. It is not a prophecy of Christ. So so let me ask you, Charlie, when you when you realize this, uh, this kind of a proof text instead of the Hebrew, what made you was it because you knew the Hebrew did not read that that caused you to pick this as a an example of a proof text? Why did you pick this one? Um, I was interested, as I did all of the chapters, and uh, especially the chapter on the atonement and Old Testament prophecies of the atonement, I was yeah. interested to go back and, and look at all of the Old Testament proof texts that we use in Mormonism to prove that there was an atonement. This one happens to be a passage that uh, traditional Christians have used, and yet, uh, as I looked at it and looked at scholarly commentaries, what they had to say about it, uh, they pointed out the Hebrew, underlying Hebrew, and that's where I got it. And I thought it was remarkable that even Adam Clark, who was a, a, a popular, famous uh, Methodist Bible commentator, Joseph Smith's day, he himself said it's totally absurd to use this as a prophecy of Christ because it has nothing to do with uh, with Christ being crucified. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating that this whole chapter is a prophecy of the destruction awaiting the false prophets because of yeah. their lies and deceit. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the case with several of these uh, prophecies that uh, have been used traditionally in Christianity to apply to Christ is that oftentimes not only did they not apply to Christ, but they applied to something that is just the opposite of everything that Christ stood for. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, talk about misreading out of context. It, it, it's breathtaking. Now, now I went back and reread this chapter when I when I, when I was preparing for this, and I reread it both in the Hebrew and the English, and uh, yeah, th there's no way you you can get Christ in this context. Not a chance. There's just no way. And yet, it's pulled completely out of context to make the to make the prophecy. Now, when here's the catch is when the problem is when we end up discovering on a closer analysis that, oh, well, yeah, whoops, that definitely is taken out of context. That can't build faith. Uh, if it's one thing the church leaders need to do, it's get inspiration enough to recognize that proof texts do not build faith. Because once you see the context, then you look at the leaders who are supposed to be doing what? Teaching us true doctrine, right? You look at them and you say, well, what the hell? How come you're lying to me? Because for all the world, and I'm not trying to accuse them of that. I'm not trying to, but for all the world, that's what it makes them look like they're doing. And, yeah. and it just does or, not. Or, or at least don't speak with such certainty 
like you know this is what it refers to when you don't. If, you, if you're not sure, if you're just speaking out of tradition, then say you know, so. Couch it that way. Say so, yes. And, and please don't tell me, well, it's because the Bible has been corrupted enough that we have the restored true meaning. That only gets you so far. It is true, however, that there are places where the Bible has been corrupted, that they're not wrong in that. But every time to establish a unique doctrine to go to that appears just desperate. I, I hope I'm not over-speaking there, but it really does to me. So, Okay, and take it away on this one. Yeah, th this, was, uh, this is an important context time-wise that you brought out. Yeah, an important thing. And in, in this first chapter, what I'm trying to do again is lay the groundwork for the rest of the chapter, subsequent chapters. And it's so important, I think, to get this in our heads that prophecy isn't what we think it is. And it's not what we were taught it was. When ancient prophets spoke of the last days, they didn't have our day in view. They, they didn't see our day. Every context of the last day prophecy shows the concern was for their own era and place. For them, it would be their own last days. It had nothing to do with looking down through the long corridors of time, seeing happenings thousands of years into the future. Their visions of heaven, such as Ezekiel and Isaiah's and even Enoch's, were astonishingly, mag astonishingly magnificent, but it had nothing to do with our day. The prophets were forth tellers. They told people to repent or they would be punished. And, you know, that was a something that was just a formulaic in Old Testament times. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah prophetic it wasn't they weren't foretellers of the world and certainly not of our day of modern times yeah and it's not that and, and this is so important I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna kind of emphasize this it is not that we are denying prophecy what we are saying is to attempt to make a prophet look like he is foretelling the future so often when the context says otherwise is where the problems are building. That's faith destroying, yeah. not faith supporting. That, is that, does that sound fair to you? That's a good point. Uh, if we add to that also recognition of uh, prophecies after the fact or ex eventu prophecy which if we recognize, for example, that the book of Daniel was written in like 167 BC, not in you know, the time of the Babylonian captivity, he right. wasn't foretelling of all those things. He was relating history, presenting it as though it were prophecy. And uh, that, of course, is something we just need to recognize. And not to pop some people's bubbles who have a a favorite text, but Matthew 24 falls into this same thing, the little apocalypse in Matthew. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason he knows such details about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem is not because he's been shown it in a future. Matthew was authored after the destruction of the temple, and he was writing it 
looking back, propelling it to make it look like it was a prophecy. Again, he was proof texting history in this sense to, to give a power to Jesus that perhaps is not available for John Q. Public. We don't know that because we weren't there, I agree, but that, that's, that's the theme. So very important to understand. And then I, I was trying to get fancy with my graphic. I apologize. It's kind of hard to read, so I'll read this one, unless you would like to. No, go for it. This is, and, and this is very important. I just did a video earlier this afternoon on Book of Mormon Central. They were talking about the Book of Abraham, and they made a pretty big important point that our biases and presuppositions must be taken into account. And so I did, and I thrashed their Book of Abraham apologetic. You can see that here on the Mormon Discussion, Inc. It's the same thing here. Our biases and presuppositions really do, and I, I misspelled this effect, they do affect our scriptural interpretations. There's no question about it, because what is problematic about a proof text is that it takes it out of its original context, and when if you take two different proof texts out of each of their context. One was from 1800 BC. The other one was from 200 AD. And you stitch those together in order to make the appearance of a uniformity of doctrine from 2000 BC up to today, you're cheating. I don't care if they claim inspiration, that method don't cut that don't work. And yet this is the problem with proof texts. That's how they're treated. So because of our biases, we want to support doctrinal uh, innovation or creativity, as it were, of Joseph Smith in order to help show Mormonism is a proper restoration. This is one of Hugh Nibley's problematic areas. It was one of the areas that Farms got into trouble with time and again when they were discussing with biblical scholars about the Book of Mormon prophecies in the Bible, etc. So our tendency as Latter-day Saints is to read today's beliefs in the church back into the ancient history and into the ancient scripture. And what this, it gives us the impression that there has been a uniformity, a continuity of doctrine, and that it was had once anciently, there was an apostasy, they lost it, and therefore Joseph Smith brings it back. This dog won't hunt. I'm going to be as blunt as I know how to. The problem with this is it lies about historical truth. It gives us a false impression that, well, it was believed once anciently, and therefore it's a true doctrine today because Joseph Smith brought it back. There's the defect. Uh, am I overstating that, Charlie? Do you think? What do you think? Uh, not at all. You know, it's like we have a doctrine and we think that all of the different scriptures, you know, Bible, Book of Mormon, everything points to that doctrine, our, our current theology. And we tend to read all scripture 
as though it supports that doctrine when in fact <laughs> it doesn't. You know, it's this is a it, it's a theological reading of scripture and interpretation. It's not a historical contextual reading of scripture. And so we've got it backwards. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's okay. Thank you. I, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't misstating uh, things if I could at all help it. I think you're right okay. on. Well, thank you. Keep keep going. Go ahead and elaborate on this one for us, would you? Um, so Christianity, just like the Old Testament, grew out of the Near Eastern religions that uh, it was a Canaanite religion like them and, and adopted the same kinds of teachings. And by the way, there's, there's this concept of... Um, what I talk about that uh, uh, Mark Smith promotes, he's a, he's a well-respected Old Testament scholar, talks about convergence followed by differentiation. And so you get, it's kind of a, we talked about syncretization before, or syncretism, which is where you take these different beliefs and you kind of formulate them into a new teaching that is a conglomeration of a bunch of other teachings. And so that's sort of how uh, theology and doctrines developed. It was borrowed and patched together and then differentiated was the second stage to make it a unique doctrine of theirs. Uh, this is what was done in the Old Testament. The New Testament does the same thing. So as it says here on the right panel, Christianity was continuous with a variety of philosophies, traditions, and religious practices, and synthesized all these into a new structure, into a new belief system. The predominant uh, influence on earliest Christianity was first century Judaism, which was the tradition and background of the first Christian. Jesus was a Jew who uh, naturally thought in Jewish categories. Paul was a Jew. Uh, they all had... Uh, the Jewish concept in mind, and it emerged, Christianity, first century Christianity, emerged in an environment of extreme uh, apocalypticism. So everybody was convinced that the end was near, uh, that God would come, and in, in after Christ's resurrection or, or crucifixion, it was Jesus would come again, and bring judgment on everything, and that that was imminent. And so, you know, the New Testament simply fit right into that culture of the time. Um, yeah. And it, it was influenced completely by its culture, which is also was also highly Hellenized at the time. Uh, you know, Jew, Judaism was not the same Judaism as 500 years previously. After, after the captivity and after uh, Alexander the Great came in 325. It, That's it true. Yeah, it had changed dramatically, actually. Yeah. Yeah, the Hellenization of the Jews really, boy, that added just another entire layer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, this leads us, just keep right on trucking. Now, this leads us into the point with Bruce R. McConkie. Again, we come back forward to Mormonism to see where the tension is being produced. 
I'll read what McConkie said in his picture, and then I'll let you read that other part. No true Latter-day Saint will ever take a stand that is in opposition to what the Lord has revealed to those who direct the affairs of his earthly kingdom. Again, infallibility. You're guilty if you don't accept what these people say. But let's see the reality. So when, of course, blacks were um, given the priesthood and temple blessings, which were denied them, um, he came out, of course, everybody's aware of this, forget everything that I said, or what Brigham Young, George Q. Cannon, everybody said about um, blacks not getting the priesthood till after everybody has a chance to have the priesthood, said they were wrong. They spoke with uh, the limited light and understanding that they had at the time. So now we have greater light and knowledge. Here's the new truth. So what does this say about doctrine? Um, you, know, you can say that was a policy, but that was a doctrinal teaching that they weren't to have the priesthood. They were denied and they wouldn't get it until a future date. Uh, so what does that say about other teachings? Does that mean that... Um, we don't know if they were given in the full light and knowledge. Are we to wait for uh, some further light and knowledge and then expect that they might change as well? Yeah. How can, we, how can we have absolute faith and confidence if they're telling us that, well, we didn't have the full light. Sorry. Now we do. And how do we know that they do now? Yeah. It's, it's a yeah. dilemma. It is a dilemma. And uh, James Faulkner, uh, and I should have put this in quotes because I did quote it. I apologize. He's an LDS scholar. He said that one of the spinoffs in a belief in continuing revelation is the refusal to allow theology to be set once and for all. And yet that must say that there is no absolute fundamental truth in Mormonism ever because the new revelations will change what was the truth just five years ago. Heck, it can happen in just one day if that's how fast the Lord wishes to speak. So this is quite a conundrum here. So let's keep going. Um, and now this one. Well, Terry, just at a minimum, you would think that the church would say, um, let's not be so absolute about Oh, there, because, there. because we, we know that doctrines have changed. So for leaders to get up and say, no, this is an eternal, unchanging truth, you wonder, that's not practical to say that. It's, it's not consistent with your own experience. How can you say that? How can you make any claim like that? Exactly. Yeah. And see, again, this tension is it. It's unfortunate, but what it does is it causes distrust between John Q. member and El Hombre leader, so to speak. It's a, you know, they're walking a fine line just like the rest of us. You know, we're all just looking for truth and knowledge and light that further light and knowledge that Father promised, but it doesn't seem to ever actually 
arrived because it keeps changing. Now, you can be excommunicated for disagreeing with the doctrines that they teach, and then in 10 years they repudiate those doctrines. So is your excommunication valid? See, this opens up a whole can of worms. So they've ruined your life. You've ended up being divorced because your wife or, or your husband uh, wanted an eternal companion. And since you're such a disbelieving dolt, you got excommunicated. So it ruins my eternity. And so you get a divorce and your kids hate your guts and all that. And then it turns out that the damn doctrine wasn't true anyway. That's ugly. I, that gets a, I, I've had that experience in my family. That's why I bring it up. That, that, that's unsolvable. So this is one of the side defects of this theme of continuing revelation and believe what we tell you is absolute. Thank you for bringing it up that way. It's the absolutism that's causing the problem. So. And once again, this leads me right into this slide. One of the chief means of misleading our youth in destroying the family unit is our educational systems. <laughs> that was Ezra Tap Benson. And yet, and yet here we, we were just talking about this, the idea of blindly following the church's leaders because they have absolute truth. Uh, it's more credulous than it is showing forth faith. Uh, actually, I like Alan Watts' statement where he says, true faith is not in clinging to something. True faith is letting go. Let the universe function. That's deeply profound when you really ponder that one. So anyway, and then, you know, they want you to, to believe and they want you to examine what they're teaching us so that you can discover it's true. And my retort to that is, but what if I find it that it is not true? Then what? Then we do what we should have always done in the first place. We begin to follow the evidence. Truth is only ever established with evidence, not just claims. Once again, we will emphasize this because it seems to be in attention. There is no prophetic infallibility. And so when they try to make us feel guilty, well, you're straying from the covenant path because you're not following Russell M. Nelson's advice. You're not following his advice. So you're follow, falling off the covenant path. No, that's not what's happening. They want you to think that's what's happening. That's, you're not following off the covenant path just because you disagree with some advice the prophet of the church says. You see, they, they say one thing, then they act like another. And, and that's where the, the tension comes from. Do you want to add anything to that before I have you read this one? Or discuss this. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so, again, talking about the uh, concept of prophecy, we talked about it in terms of the Old Testament and how they did not see future events in the days of Christ and certainly not in our day. Uh, the New Testament is the same. Much of it was written uh, pseudepigraphically, in, in essence, or ex eventu. Uh, the book of Revelation speaks about events that are already in progress in John's day. So if you read the book of Revelation carefully, uh, he was commanded not to even uh, close up the book or seal up the book because its events were about to happen. Um, so if we understand that he was not seeing a history of the world 
into modern times, but simply had an apocalyptic vision about what he perceived happening in his day, um, that makes a complete difference in how we view the book of Revelation. So uh, when he saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, he was not seeing Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith. Uh, those are fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in order to really appreciate uh, scripture in its context, um, we got to be able to accept prophecy uh, for yeah. what it is. Otherwise, we continually, it's amazing how many people still take these prophecies so literally as talking about modern times and then speculate, spend endless speculation as to what's the fulfillment of that or how did this get fulfilled or has it been fulfilled yet? And yeah. it's just, it's pointless. It's futile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point. And then there's this one. Keep on trucking. Um, so this comes back again to the doctrines and teachings that we have today are not um, the same as what ancient people believed. And in fact, there's not even a uniformity of teachings in the scriptures themselves. Every prophet, every writer of sacred texts had their own beliefs and their own view of what God means, what Christ meant, um, and they wrote based on their own paradigm, their own cultural understanding. They didn't write as an absolute, this is the eternal truth. They may have thought that their view was the eternal truth and proclaimed it that way, but as soon as you line it up with the other teachings, uh, even of their contemporaries, they're different. Yeah. And so you have to reach the only valid conclusion you can about the nature of these teachings, that they are simply culturally conditioned. Yeah, yeah. We actually have four different Jesuses in the four different Gospels in, in many regards. It, it, you know, we like to think, well, I, what we think of Jesus, of course, Luke thought the same thing because it's in the scripture and Joseph Smith restored the scripture, you know, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. So, but yeah, this is the danger uh, that we face receiving the instruction from the leaders of the church that we have the same spirit of prophecy. We have the same revelation that the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament had. Amos 3, 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing except he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. I mean, I memorized that in seminary, and I still haven't forgot that one. That's about the only one I ever remember. But, <laughs> but this gives a this creates a false impression that God won't do anything unless he tells prophets. And since God doesn't change ever, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as per the Book of Mormon, then the Old Testament prophets were teaching and saying the same things that today's are. Mm -hmm. and that's where we get this incredible tension of unfulfilled prophecies, of leaders being wrong about the... Well, just like you document, 
the conflict of understanding and interpretation with biblical scholarship, which I personally discovered as an apologist, is really tense when you compare it with the Mormon scholarship. In fact, the Mormons rarely seldom have a leg to stand on compared to the biblical scholarship. So now they've, they've gotten to the point to where they like to say, well, those guys, all they're doing is mingling the philosophy of scripture with the philosophy of men or the philosophy of men with scripture. Yeah. All scripture is someone's philosophy though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you kind of, it, it, it's just, it's just so interesting. And then, of course, this is the scriptural inerrancy. Oh, this is the one about the virgin birth that you uh, you had brought out. Why don't you go ahead and elaborate on this? Um, I didn't see this slide, Carrie. Let's see. Oh, um, did you? Well, let me elaborate on it. I didn't I'll show you. you elaborate on it, and I'll chime in if I see any. Well, well, you were talking about the virgin birth of Jesus is one story among many that was well known in the ancient Near East. Mm. And what this does is it describes extraordinary people having extraordinary births. This is not a unique event in history. And uh, several biblical scholars uh, have discussed this. So when we get to the idea of scriptural inerrancy, now we don't, the church does not teach inerrancy, and yet it teaches that our interpretations of those scriptures should be believed so our interpretation is probably inerrant or correct. Mm -hmm. And so even though it's been given through humans, there are mistakes. And it's true. The Book of Mormon does say that. So does the Doctrine and Covenants. They say that with their lips. They pay lip service to human mistakes. But Oaks said the church has no reason to ever apologize. In other words, it's already always been perfect and acted perfect. We don't make mistakes. We don't apologize. See, this infallibility thing keeps coming back to haunt them. And the question is, what is ultimately real? We don't know. They have put themselves in that position to be unable to say so, because we're prophets, seers, revelators, translators, etc. They love the office. They love the prestige that comes with the office, but they rarely work within that office. I'll put it that way. At least that's the appearance. So we don't get the total God overarching truth point of view at all in scriptures or through the prophets. That's the catch. What we think is unique may not be unique. What we think is a pattern may not be a pattern. It may be our own bias coming along. So and I always like saying this, just because a prophet has spoken does not mean the thinking has been done. Even Jesus's words were culturally tempered and temporarily confined to his age and understanding of his consciousness. And that's really important to grasp. Jesus was a Jew in the full sense of the word. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, I listen to Christian commentators who who interview biblical scholars on history and uh, archaeology and languages and stuff like that. And they say the thing that just blows us away the most is when people tell us in the congregations, well, Jesus is a Christian. 
Okay. I have had people tell me, well, Jesus is a Mormon. For real. And, and you know, uh, there is a huge disconnect here somewhere. So that was the idea behind that slide. Good. That's a good one. Did I show you this one? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is key. And I think uh, Thomas Alexander, who is a church historian, uh, made an, a very important observation that really captures the whole essence of what we've been talking about, where he said, the main barrier to understanding the, the development of Mormon theology is an underlying assumption by the members that there is a cumulative unity of doctrine. Mormons seem to believe that particular doctrines develop consistently, that ideas build on each other in hierarchical fashion. As a result, older revelations are interpreted by referring to current doctrinal positions, just what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. It is bad history and leads to an unwarranted impression of continuity and consistency. But it's just not there. There is not that kind of continuity and consistency that we impose on the scriptures and it does violence yes. the scriptures to do so and i that this is the reason why i put up the gordon b hinckley quote because this is the material that they want us uh, this is their public stance and hinckley saying that this work stands as an anchor of stability an anchor of values in a world whose values are shifting we stand for something our values find their roots in the teachings of the gospel of jesus christ these are unchanging they are today as they were when jesus walked the earth and that's precisely what falconer is saying that kind of image isn't real. Yeah. So, and then finally, I do believe we're getting close here. And then this is more, oh yeah, no, no. I'm going to let you elaborate on this because this was, this was an important establishment on the, uh, the non-uniformity, even within the old Testament, and the reason I suspect why you brought these parts of the Old Testament is because they interlace with the New Mormon scriptures, the Book of Mormon, DNC, and the Prairie Prize. So take it away. Uh, yeah, I think <clears throat> just like we talked about in the New Testament, that every writer had their own theology, uh, reading the Gospels. Uh, the Christology of Mark is different from that of Luke of that of John, and they're different. And the same thing is true in the Old Testament. This is actually um, uh, a quote from uh, Felix Jest, who is an Old Testament scholar. He said, Deuteronomist theology is very different from biblical apocalyptic or end time kind of theology. The theology of the book of Kings contrasts sharply with that of the prophet Jeremiah. It is the same with the New Testament that we just talked about. Um, they're all different. And so yeah. to presume that there is this unified, unbroken chain of teachings throughout the standard works is just, 
extremely naive, and it's very uninformed. And it's very unhelpful when we're told that's what we should believe the modern prophet interpretation when they say, well, yeah, Jeremiah believed like Joseph Smith. He was a warning, a voice of warning, and therefore he believed the same doctrines. That, that, that's where I think the, the tension gets, uh, the angst builds in, in people. So, and finally, this is our last slide. Go ahead. Keep right on elaborating. Tell us what this is. Oh, and by the way, I want you to know, I work like crazy on this slide. Check out Jesus coming right out of the cosmos, right to Salt Lake City. There you have it. You saw it here first on the Backyard Professor. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Notice that's not the Vatican down below there. That's that's <laughs> Lake. Uh, so this has, uh, based on a quote from Grant Underwood, who had a significant amount of involvement in the Joseph Smith papers initially, uh, looking at how the revelations were developed, how they were recorded, how they were revised, the history of that. And he recognized that, wow, revelation is really a lot messier than what we've thought. It's not just... God handing down this eternal truth, well-developed, and, and the prophet just simply records it. But they yeah. were reworked, changed, modified. And so it led him to conclude that the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities. Um, so they were what he called uh, fully divine and fully human, which is kind of a difficult concept to grasp. It's sort of the uh, hypostatic union uh, of Christ <laughs> and traditional yeah. Christianity of Christ being fully divine and fully human, which is incomprehensible. Yeah. But it's, it's the only way you can accept inspirational revelation as being divine and infallible, which it should be if it's the word of God, and yet being so messy and human and changing. Um, so we have to say that, okay, we have human hands thoroughly involved in it, but it's also completely divine at the same time. So yeah. that's one way, that's one model for viewing revelation that some people can accept. Yeah, it sounds to me like cognitive dissonance uh, because we're taught to abhor the idea that God, God probably shouldn't allow so much human error with his most important word, and yet here we are with fallible scriptures absolutely everywhere we look and contradictory scriptures. But like I've told some apologists, I said, well, I mean, God has allowed that to stand for centuries. He's obviously good with it. If he does want to correct it, he easily could. So there is that. So not much of a satisfying answer, but that's what I give them when they when they bring this this theme up. So, so the takeaway then has to be that God embraces this messiness. He's okay with it. He's okay with all this change and fluidity of doctrinal teaching. So why shouldn't we be? 
And so quit trying to make us feel guilty when I have a different view of Second Nephi than Russell M. Nelson. If, uh, if Elder Uchdorf wants to teach what the meaning of Third Nephi 7 through 11 is, that's awesome. I will consider that. But if I have a, another take, don't tell me I'm the one straying off the covenant path and Satan's after your soul and your mind is going to be darkened if you don't... You know what I mean? This this cheap pop Mormon psychology has just got to stop, in my opinion. It's what's driving people away and out and putting our hands up and saying, whoa, instead of embracing the diversity and saying, it's okay if you think that way, we'll keep studying it together. You know, you can believe anything you want, just don't talk about it, should become, you can believe anything you want and come, let's all learn together from each other. There's the difference that could help Mormonism, in my opinion. That would makes be very me refreshing. Yep. It makes me sound a little egotistical, but I know a lot of people who agree with me, mm -hmm. <laughs> including Dr. Charles Harrelson. <laughs> Charlie, this has been our call. We've been going about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, we've covered everything that we wanted to in this first wonderful chapter of yours. So, uh, is there anything you want to say to wrap up or? Um, I think we pretty much covered it. Just kind of recap um, that even though the church teaches that doctrine, a doctrine is an eternal, unchanging truth, and that those are the teachings that are presented in Scripture and the teachings of the prophets, modern-day prophets, what we find is that the scriptures and teachings of the prophets are riddled with change, with inconsistencies, contradictions, and we'll see that as we look at uh, other doctrines in the book. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. We will be having more shows together talking about the other uh, chapters in Charlie's book. Um so we're going to call it good for now. Thank you all for all your participation, love and support, and all of you in chat. We do appreciate it immensely. We're going to head out, and we will see you next time on the Backyard Professor Sunday Evening Show. Great. <laughs>